0: Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that will never force you to buy 10,000 straw fedoras. Today we have all-star Close Horse guest Janine back to talk about excess inventory. Trust me, it's an exciting story filled with hubris, despair, and straw hats that are really made of paper with a bad zipper thrown in as a twist. Do you remember learning about basic needs in elementary school? You know, food, water, air, shelter, clothing. So yeah, clothing is a basic human need, but somehow, somewhere it got way out of control. Globally, we waste one garbage truck of clothing every second. Six out of every 10 garments are burned or buried, meaning going in the landfill, within their first year of production. Wait a minute, did you hear that last part? Within their first year of production, i.e. in the same year that these clothes were made, they go to the landfill or are burned. According to the EPA, in the US alone, we send nearly 13 million tons of textile waste to landfills annually. That's an entire football field filled 14 feet deep with clothing. That's a metaphor for you sports fans. <laughs> Textiles, AKA fabric, release 500 million tons of microfibers into the ocean every year, the equivalent of 50 billion plastic bottles. The U S has the highest contamination rate with 94% of tap water containing plastic fibers. Remember in episode one, we talked about how we each consume one credit card size serving of plastic each year. That's how it happens, and our clothing is a big culprit. So today, while we talk about how retailers and brands end up with excess inventory and create an epic amount of waste, I want you to think more about your personal excess inventory. Data indicates that although women are spending 5% less than they used to on clothes, they are buying 20% more of them. Cheap clothes, man. You know what cheap clothes often mean? Synthetics, And what are synthetics? Plastic. And where does plastic go? Into our water supply. And then what? Somehow we eat it. It's a bad story, guys. One email survey of American women found that those who responded owned an average of $550 of unworn clothes. Just chilling out at their house. I know. I know you're thinking about the stuff hidden in the back of your closet or under your bed or... Stuffed in a drawer that still has the tags on. That's what we're talking about here. However, if you wore your clothes nine months longer, remember, a lot of these clothes are going to the landfill in less than a year. So imagine wearing these clothes for nine months longer. I mean, that's not even that long. If you did that, you could reduce the carbon and waste footprint of your wardrobe by 20 to 30%. Wow, really makes you think about... Hashtag, oops, I wore it again, wearing things over and over again, giving them new life by styling them differently, wearing them with different accessories or shoes or layering pieces. So what's the overall takeaway here? Well, it's buy less, wear longer, extend its life by passing it on to someone else when you're done with it. Maybe buy it used in the first place. I mean, okay, maybe if we all at one time sold our $550 of unworn clothes on resale apps like Depop and Poshmark. We could save even more waste. I would love to hear what you're doing to consume less clothes. I bet you've got some really good ideas that you could share with the rest of us. Send me a message at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com. Okay, enough nagging. Let's get into the episode. <music> Hi, hey, Close Horse listeners. I have a huge treat for you today. Janine is back. Uh, Hello. My- <laughs> uh Janine's basically famous. She's an all-star guest already, having appeared in both episodes one and two. And so I I don't know. Janine, is there anything that has changed since the last time we talk or any other fun
1: facts you want to call out about yourself? Uh Unfortunately, no. <laughs> <laughs> Every, everything is pretty much the same.
0: Okay. But you do have a kitten, which you have not mentioned in previous episodes. And the Instagram content is solid gold.
1: Uh, Yeah. The kitten is great. Um, Her name is Nightmare. Last (laughs) week, I'm trying to think if it was before or after we recorded, but we actually, I took her to the vet um, for her first vet visit. And actually before we took her to the vet, I thought that she was a he- um Ooh. and then we found out that she is a sheep. but <laughs> really funny because I feel like she's actually quite gender neutral as kind of most cats are so yeah yeah <laughs> giving her ascribing her a gender seems kind of silly um she's actually locked out of the room right now so that she can't interfere um yeah that's, that's a good call <laughs> so she lives up to the name she really does
0: um, <laughs> Well, and it's a good gender neutral name anyway, so it all worked out, you know. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, so today we're going to talk about something that might sound boring on the surface, but is it's a nightmare of its own, but not in a cute little kitten way. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that went up on the fly there. Uh, you know, I've been actually thinking, well, I came downstairs yesterday after recording an episode and... My husband and my daughter were watching reruns of Sally Jesse Raphael on oh some God. some app and it made me realize that I really think that my calling is to be a 90s talk show host. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, if anybody knows of any opportunities for that, like, please reach out to me ASAP. You should definitely get a perm. <laughs> I would definitely have to get a perm. I'd probably wear a pantsuit, which I've never done before. But I mean, I think, you know, maybe one of the uh, surprises of this nightmare that is 2020 is we're all going to do really crazy different things in 2021 and, and be glad about it. So
1: um, I would be very glad to see you wearing any blazer with shoulder pads, in um, <laughs> the bigger the better. Yeah, big.
0: <laughs> anyway, so today we're going to talk about excess inventory. So I thought I would give you some you know, I know, you know, by now that I love a fun fact, and these are actually really unfun facts, so not so fun facts. First off, 10 to 15% of the 150 billion garments made every year go straight to landfills without ever being owned by someone, you know, that's like pre-consumer. If you didn't get your calculator out fast enough, that's okay, because I've already calculated that. Mm-hmm. It's 15 billion garments. That's so many zeros. They're just going to the landfill. No one's ever buying them. They're never touching a body, maybe in a fitting room, but that's about it. So this number, as horrible as it is, is independent of the clothing thrown away by consumers every year that they've already bought. And if I haven't mentioned this already somewhere along the line, the average consumer throws away 70 pounds of clothing every year. First, I was like, I love like a formula, trying to figure some stuff out. And I was like, oh, maybe I could figure out the average weight of some clothes and then like how many garments that would be. But you know what? I think 70 pounds is good enough for all of us to picture 70 pounds of clothing. And so in the United States alone, we send 21 billion pounds of textiles into landfills every single year. And since most of these clothes contain synthetics – aka plastic, they aren't biodegradable and they will sit there forever. You add these to these garments that are being thrown away before anyone even buys them. I mean, it's like our landfill's just clothing now and maybe like, I, I don't know, water bottles and diapers. I mean, I like what's in there, you know? It's uh, yeah, wild. So you you might remember a whole bunch of news going around uh, in 2017 about H&M. And, Maybe, maybe you haven't. Maybe this was just something that people work, who work in the industry knew about. But Danish TV, like a television station, revealed that H&M, one of our well-known fast fashion retailers, had burned 60 tons of new and unsold clothes since 2013. So this was in 2017, right? So in that time period, those four years, they'd burned 60 tons of clothes. And I once again, I, I couldn't really name a number of garments that that would be, but I do know that this included 30,000 cowboy-themed trousers for children, which sound pretty cute, actually. I agree. Right? And then less cute, really more appropriate for a 90s talk show host, were some dark pl- blue ladies' pants. And they still had the price tags on them. I mean, they, like, they'd like never been bought. Nothing had ever happened, but they'd clearly been intended to be purchased. And those 30,000 pairs of pants, they were just like a small part of the incinerated inventory. So this was some really bad press. Strangely, H&M didn't come out and say, okay, we're going to stop doing that. And so by 2018, they had continued to accumulate even more of this like unsold inventory. And at that point, the value of all of this excess inventory was $4.3 billion. And like, I don't know if you've gone to H&M recently, but everything's like $20. (laughs) So, we're talking a lot, a lot of garments here. So, we're going to talk today about how something like this could happen. But in terms of HM, they kind of checked all the boxes of like a perfect storm of how you end up with lots of inventory. So, it was like slowing sales, they bought into the wrong trends, quality fit issues. I mean, and just buying too much inventory in general and in fact their excess inventory problems are so ongoing and so just epic in scale that a power plant in Vesteras which i might be mispronouncing this is the town where H&M founded its first store and was where they have a lot of offices that power plant relies partly on burning defective products that H&M cannot sell in order to create energy oh my so, god i know so gross so so gross so today we're going to talk about how retailers, because H&M is not the only character in this drama of wasted clothing in the world. We're going to talk about how this happens to retailers. Where, How do they get there? Is there a part that we as the customers play? Is it all in the businesses? Janine's a great person to unpack this with, because if you don't recall, one of the jobs of a planner is to manage the inventory.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I think this is a really interesting topic because as a consumer, um, of course, you see things when they're on sale, and maybe when you're in the sales section, you might see a bunch of children's cowboy print pants and and realize, oh, that thing obviously didn't work out, or they obviously bought too much of that. But I think a lot of the excess inventory and wasted inventory and inventory and just inventory that becomes literally trash is really invisible to the consumer and. If you're if you're in the business, it's something that you're painfully aware of all the time. The entire job function that I <laughs> worked in for you know many years, <laughs> the main job of that function is to prevent um, excess inventory and to move through inventory to make sure that we don't end up with excess. But if you're just like the average person shopping in a store. Retailers really do their best to hide the ugliness of this part of the business from customers. And so, yes, you might see things that are on sale for super cheap. But other than that, there's like a whole world (laughs) of of liquidation and destruction that goes on to get rid of this excess inventory, which is really crazy.
0: So there are two ways that this happened. One is is based more on specific styles. And of course, this can be death by a thousand paper cuts as well. And then there's another route to excess inventory that is really based on larger business decisions and and business trends. So we're going to start with the specific style-related ways you can get a lot of extra inventory. And the number one way that this can happen is basically the buyer picked the wrong thing, right? The demand for a style did not align with what they bought. Maybe it wasn't like it was, it sold okay, but maybe it wasn't great, but they bought it to be great. And I mean, I could get really down in the weeds with this because when you're buying, you're planning things to be an A buy, a B buy, a D buy, you know, going to some stores, going to all stores and they're tiered out and it's very specific. But I mean, once again, while you might be using previous data to make these decisions, it's really also about intuition. You know, there's like a, a there's a mixture of science and art in buying. And sometimes with the art, you just, you just miss the bows. So sometimes it might just be one style or it could be an entire trend. Like This really sticks with me, Janine, but you mentioned in episode one or two that there was a situation in which 5,000 berets were purchased (laughs) and I think about, I have a beret in my closet and I saw it the other day and it was like triggering.
1: (laughs) In that particular situation, which we we, (laughs) we won't name names, but one can infer. But anyways, this is a perfect example of, it was, the brand was launching a new marketing campaign and we were launching a catalog in timing with that, with that campaign. We had a very exciting cover girl on the cover of the catalog and she was wearing a beret and so this image of her in the beret was like the hero image of all of our marketing for that season with this like celebrity and all of this stuff so there was a <laughs> there was a big push to make sure for those specific items that this woman was wearing on the cover that we had as many possible units of all of these styles as possible and <laughs> one one might infer that a beret is a bit specific. (laughs) Why? In fact, when the beret trend was like really going strong, I tried really hard to wear a beret and I, I've tried it so many times. It's also like, it's it's low risk. Their berets are like 15, 20 bucks. Like it's not expensive. And I really, really tried. I tried multiple berets in multiple colors and it just, it just never worked <laughs> on me. And so, surprisingly or not surprisingly, every customer was not purchasing herself a red beret to be <laughs> just. Like.
0: Oh wait, it was a red beret. It oh was red. man. It was red.
1: <laughs> uh, I mean, to be fair, the the girl on the cover, she looked great, and she looked super cute. She looked amazing. Cute little red beret and a little trench coat. Um, she looked great there was never anything <laughs> that ever told anyone that yeah. 5,000 <laughs> units was an appropriate number of red berets to buy. And I think I'm pretty sure that was also just in red.
0: Oh my God, not stop.
1: Like, not like, because I think we we definitely also had it like in obviously black, maybe yellow, like a gold yellow, and maybe one or two other colors. And I think I think 5,000 in the red alone were purchased. <laughs> yeah, just that's,
0: I, I too mean, many you know what? it's too many brands. You know, I, it's, it's strange, but I also have my own hat nightmare story from my buying career. Mine was a little different uh, and even more just offensive. <laughs> it was uh, straw fedoras.
1: <laughs> oh my God. I have my own straw fedora. Catastrophe! What? Stop. No. Okay, yes. so I okay. I'm going to tell you my
0: story, but I bet it parallels yours so similarly. So-
1: I'd also like to know what year it was.
0: I mean, this was pretty early in my buying career, Uh, and at that point, I was managing a lot of different accessories classes, and one of them was hats. And you know, there's certain parts of hats that are an eternal business, right? Like people need to wear beanies and whatnot in in cold weather, and you know, there's there's a little bit of a demand for like a floppy sun hat in the summer, but it's it's not huge. Everything else about hats is kind of trend based, and so. Either it's way in or it's way out. Like hats might go out of style because everyone's wearing headbands, or you know, even suddenly sure. it's scarves. Like it, it, it's you know it's all over the place. So there was a year that we tested a straw fedora, and this was when like fedoras were really starting to come into their own. And oh, I, think, I know this deeply. Yeah, I mean, what, what what year do you think that was? Was that two thousand ten? Was it before? Yeah, then? I was
1: gonna say I, mean, I was gonna say maybe twenty eleven. Actually, okay, I think. 2010, 2011 might've been when they were really having their moment. Yeah. Um, And I would say, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was. Yeah. It might've been over by 2011. I don't know. I'm just, I'm I'm definitely,
0: I'm going to, I'm going to dig into this (laughs) when we're done recording because I need to know (laughs) don't you need to know. So anyway, so there was a fedora moment and if you were alive then and cognizant of the world, you were witnessing this going on around you. And so we were kind of, when I say we, I mean, I I don't know why I'm speaking in the royal we. I mean, I was pretty skeptical of fedoras initially because it was it was very niche in the beginning, but like all trends, it spread like wildfire. Yes. And specifically it began to pick up momentum in the spring of that season. So we tested this straw fedora. I don't know, maybe I bought like 500 units and it, it sold out like immediately. And so then it was like, okay, I'm going to buy 2000 units. Okay. Now those sold out, I'm going to buy 5,000. And so it was this picking up momentum and of course fall came and I wasn't going to continue to buy straw fedoras. And so they switched into like wool and felt and you know what, the business was really strong. But by the end of that like fall winter season, as we came into spring, I've, I felt really strongly that, okay, yes, we had sold a gazillion fedoras the year before, but I could see that it was waning. And I mean, there were already like memes about how lame fedoras were, right? It was like, it was going to die really hard and really fast. And it did. So I you know i i one of the meetings that is sort of a part of most calendars for a buying team is is like a sort of like a buy review where you show what you're going to buy for the next season for, for a specific delivery period and you show it to like other buyers leadership in the buying team you know head of merchandising maybe the store merchandisers are there et cetera. and so i'm lining up my hats so or I'm in on the table and there was a straw fedora in the end, which I had not wanted to write at all, but I wrote like 200 units because there were still some stores where it was kind of performing. And I thought like, let's fill them in there. And it was like more like, I mean, I hate to say this, but it was like the middle of the country kind of stores where they were they were a little later to the trend. So it, it would still be new and exciting to them. And at that point, our head of merchandising, the GMM, I'm going to tell you, he was a monstrous bully. <laughs> like. He went on to be a CEO at J Crew, and that's all I'm going to say about it. He's not there anymore. But he was a yeller. He would yell at you. He would like humiliate you in meetings. And he oh, just lit into me that fedoras weren't going to be a big deal. And I was just like, no, like th- th- this trend is dying. Like I try to explain a meme to someone at that level. <laughs> you can't, right? <laughs> um, but then my boss, who was the head of accessories, was like, you know what? He says, you got to You got to buy it. I want you to write 10,000 units, 10,000 units. Oh my God. So I had to go back. Not only did I have to place this 10,000 units, but we were already sort of cutting it close on delivery that I had to air some of them in. It was just, it was really stressful. And I I felt really frustrated about it because in order to make room to afford those hats, I had to cut out stuff that I felt was going to be a lot more viable uh, because, you know, I have a budget. And those hats did not sell at all. I mean, at all. And they didn't sell on Markdown. Uh, they didn't sell on further Markdown. And they all got chopped out. And who knows where they went after that. And it messed up my all my margin targets and sales targets for that category. And I did not get my bonus, which was devastating. And the thing is like, I hold myself responsible for that because I could have left that meeting. I could have talked to my boss who said, you have to buy this. And I could have gone back to my desk and built a case for why I thought that trend was dying. Like I could have, you know, I could have made a chart that showed the sales declining. You know, there are a lot of things I could have done. And so for me, that's always been one of my biggest lessons in buying is to don't just be mad and be like, fine and stop away and do it. Like come back to the table with a case.
1: That's so funny because I feel like My story is so similar to that in that like, yeah, this was, I started working at Banana Republic in like in 2010. So it may be the summer of 2010 was when they were hitting, or it could have been the summer of 2011, but whichever it was, we had bought some straw hats and with Banana, the lead times are like nine months. So there's like, no, if something sells out, it sells out. That's it. All you can do is like try to like, redo Mm -hmm. it the next year so whatever straw hats we had bought you know the year that you know they had been so popular we sold out of and fun fact to go back to our previous episode straw hats actually often aren't made out of straw they're made out of paper yes Um, i absolutely the straw fedoras that i'm speaking of were 100 made of paper yeah ours were also 100 paper and therefore they're really cheap and so they're a very attractive item to buy because they have a really high markup um, and the cost is really low. So we had sold out of these straw hats. Maybe we had one one style in two colors or something like that. The next year we had maybe two styles in five colorways total. And girl, we were buying we were buying these straw hats. I mean <laughs> I think we we easily had probably ten thousand units over the five um, the five styles, probably closer to like fifteen or twenty thousand units. Oh my god! And so <laughs> <laughs> we had straw hats like nobody had straw hats. And to your point, that trend like came and went so fast. And so by the time that we had made this big investment into the straw hats and they had launched into stores. The moment had really passed. Mm -hmm. And so then (laughs) my job was to like manage out the inventory of these straw hats. And I mean, and so this was Banana Republic physical stores. So one of the like fun problems with having physical stores is that the inventory has to physically go someplace in the store. So if you have a hundred, straw hats on Markdown or just a hundred straw hats anywhere. They have to physically sit on a table or in a shelf or in a cubby or somewhere. They have to like be available for sale in the store. And I, (laughs) I kept marking down those hats and marking down those hats because we had to make room. They had to sell out. So like when you have physical stores, you have to sell things out so that when the new stuff comes in, there's physically a place for it to, to sit and be for sale. Uh, online you can just bloat in a warehouse but in stores you have to actually move things turn things more quickly because you will physically run out of space in the store and so I'm marking these hats down marking them down marking them down like I mean I think at some point they were maybe like Two dollars and ninety-seven cents, or a dollar, I mean, like yeah. really, 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 cheap. <laughs> and it was they were just like the bane of my existence, you know, trying to get rid of these stupid hats. But at some point, like when you're on, you know, I I worked in an office and looking at the computer. At some point, like the computer, like more or less, tells you like, okay, like materially, the hats are are, are gone. But I remember being in a store, going into a Banana Republic store with my sister, like in the winter time, or maybe the following spring. Oh, no. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, they're still here. <laughs> and I told her I the story of the straw hats. And she was just like, couldn't believe it. And I was just like, fuck these stupid hats. Like, I've been trying to sell these hats for so long. Um, and especially in and we'll we'll talk about this, like, um, in the episode. But uh for a store like Banana Republic or something like that, when you have too much inventory of something, once it's in the store, it's there. Like there's no moving it. You're not going to pack it up and, and ship it out to a, a reseller or an off-price something or even to donate it or anything. Like once it's in the store, it's too labor intensive. And therefore, too costly to move it out of the store to get it someplace else because it's just you have a million stores everywhere and they'd have to like find the stuff and pack it and send it. I mean, it's just it just wouldn't ever happen. So the primary means of getting rid of liquid, like too much inventory in a store, is just to liquidate it to the like lowest, 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 lowest price possible. So if you ever see something in a store, especially uh, you know a a retailer like Gap or something like that. And it's so, 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 cheap. You just have to appreciate the reason it is so cheap is because how bad the miss was.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And that somewhere there are buyers and planners who are losing sleep over this item (laughs)
1: and possibly 10
0: years later, still shaken up by it. Oh my god.
1: Yeah. <laughs> my sister actually after after the first episode came out, she said, You didn't tell the story of the straw hats. Here you go. It's like we'll get there.
0: <laughs> you know, so we're saying, okay, an entire trend, an item can be amiss, or like one style. And also there's like and we kind of touched on this with hats, but there some categories are sort of like cyclical in nature. And one that I think of a lot is jumpsuits, which is very trend specific, but is often in many retailers its own category. So you might have a season where jumpsuits kind of come out of the blue and you're building and building and building that business. But one day it might fall off the cliff because suddenly everybody wants to wear dresses. Or, you know, we've seen a lot over the years, a lot of fluctuations between denim and athleisure. Like people want to be comfy. People want to wear jeans. People want to be comfy. People want to wear jeans. And sometimes that's predictable using data, but a lot of times it's not. Obviously, like there's no retailer in this world that new coronavirus is coming and knew that everyone would wear loungewear for 6 months. You know, like it's just it's it's some of it's out of your control like despite your best efforts. Scarves had a
1: huge trend in probably like 2014 or 2015 something like that.
0: I managed scarves then. I that's another one that died. Oh my
1: god. Yeah, and and it's just it was just a moment and it's fine.
0: Do you know that retailer COS? They're oh, owned yeah. by H&M.
1: Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah. I mean, H&M is there, you know, they own and other stories as well. Yeah, I knew that. So cause if you're not uh, familiar with it, is like minimalist fashion. Around 2013, 2014, maybe a few years later, the long-held sort of kitschy, cute, quirky kind of Zoe Deschanel trend died pretty hard all at once. I mean, it, it had been holding on for a long time and it was replaced with this minimalism trend that was a lot more about solids it was modest uh, sort of loose tunicky drapey stuff very different from the conversational print fit and flare, cute glasses bright color trend that had lived for quite a while almost since the turn of the century that was when Cause began to come up, and I actually read an article. You're funny, I don't know, last week, a couple of days ago, that talked about how Cause is really struggling right now because that trend is over. Mm. It is true. Like the last time I went in their store, I was like, oh, everything feels so stale. You know, like I don't want to wear a solid, like modest smock anymore. You know, like that's over. Right, like, right, I want right be more boho or I, I don't know. Actually, I feel like that vintage vibe is starting to come back again, but it, it is all over the place. And if your brand identity is so deeply connected to one of those aesthetics, I mean, as an overall brand, that can be a loss.
1: Or on the flip side, you could have been, I think of like Everlane where like they were, they always had this, you know, sort of, yeah, minimal aesthetic. And then when that became really on trend, everybody started doing it too. Right. And mm-hmm. so then mm-hmm. maybe you kind of own this niche. And then once that niche exploded, everybody's doing it too. And so now they can buy the things that they would have bought from you anywhere because Uniqlo is doing it and Gap is doing it and Target is doing it. And all of these other brands are, are copying and are are playing into the same trend. And it used to be something you did that was uniquely you. And now you're competing Mm -hmm. with mass market. Everybody's doing the same thing. And so you have to fight a little bit more for your market share.
0: 100%. So that kind of covers the idea of like a style or a category or trend being sort of a mistake to buy. And once again, not necessarily because the buyers or the planners were idiots, just that evidence made it seem so unpredictable. Yeah, it's so unpredictable. It seemed trends, like both business trends and like social trends seemed like it was still going to be there, but it just it just wasn't. So that's one way something might be stuck, stuck around and selling for 50 cents. There could also, and this, this happens a lot more often than you might think, there could be a quality or fit issue. So in an ideal world, this would be caught before the item was available for customers to buy, and it often is because when you – Buy something as a buyer, you get a sample in advance. You might even get multiple samples in advance, like depending on how long the development process is. But the final sample you get is called a TOP. It stands for top of production. And it is theoretically, and I say this theoretically, is supposed to come from the actual production run where the whole order was manufactured. That is not always the case. <laughs> <laughs> and that is often when the buyer gets burned. So if you get a T.O.P. and you get someone to try it on and it's too small or you can't put your foot through the legs or it's falling apart or it's the wrong color or I've referenced before a cape that was glued together, like you're going to catch it then, right? And so the customer is never going to see this product and it's never going to go to the warehouse. But that doesn't always happen. So you might get a sample that is not actually a T.O.P. and probably for some sort of sneaky reason <laughs> to be honest. And so at that point it's going to it's going to go to the warehouse. Now hopefully somehow it was caught then maybe because you pulled a sample to shoot for, you know, the website. And in that case you could work with the vendor to negotiate an RTV, which is a return. It means return to vendor. And so at that point, you know, you'd say, "Hey, here's the total units you sent us, send us the shipping labels or we'll charge you back for shipping and it would just get mailed right back to the seller. But if it maybe already came into the warehouse and went out to the stores and so now the customers are experiencing whatever's wrong with it, Then it's, I mean, it's, as Janine said, like once it's in the stores, it's a lot more complicated. So sometimes the vendor might be like, you know what, just, uh, you know, damage it out, meaning throw it in the garbage and we'll give you a credit towards your next order. Or maybe, and, and if this is like a much more egregious situation or maybe the vendor thinks they can resell it to someone else, you're going to have all the stores pack it up and ship it back to your warehouse or directly to the vendor. So I've, I've had all those experiences so like what's the most egregious fit or quality issue you've ever had in something you bought or bought personally or encountered at work, Janine?
1: I was I was actually thinking about this for a long time last night and I, I didn't have anything that was like jumping to my mind, but um, a good example of the TOP the versus TOP versus reality was I had bought um, a skirt from Modcloth, which was my employer. And it had a like accordion fold pleats in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was also metallic, like this kind of interesting metallic fabric. Sounds cute. And so the fabric was kind of delicate, and then it had these pleats in it, and then it had a side zipper. Um, And I couldn't figure out – well, actually, let me just say it had a zipper, and I couldn't figure out (laughs) – where the zipper was supposed to go. Oh no. (laughs) The zipper was so like rounded. Like it was like popping out. And I think it was just, it was because the way that they had sewn it into this pleated fabric and the way that the fabric was kind of had like, it wouldn't lay flat naturally. It had this sort of, it was kind of thick, I guess. I'm not articulating this well. But anyways, the zipper was like so poofy and like rounded out. I couldn't decide if it was supposed to like go like that on my hip or if it was supposed to go like that on my butt, (laughs) like to round (laughs) around something. And I'm not an incredibly curvy person, but I'm also not not curvy. And so I was kind of like, I don't know, is this just not shaped right for my body? And then I was just like, no, they just put this zipper in really shitty. And so I brought it to work because I wanted to show our head of production. Um, I was like, is this how it's supposed to be? Cause this is crazy. And he looked at it and he was like, can you put it on? And I I was like, yeah. I mean, as soon as I put it on, it was like comical. Like, I mean, the, the, this zipper was like bulging out. (laughs) And he, (laughs) and he was like, that's really crazy because he was like, here's the T.O.P. And he gave me the T.O.P. And the top was lovely. They had put the zipper in in the bottom part of the pleat, so that like it just wasn't doing this bulging thing. And he was like, "Here, you can just keep the top." Like, um, <laughs> like I feel bad you spent money on this, and like you know, it's obviously so wonky. And so then after that, he took that sample or like the one that I had bought that was messed up, and he took that back. And then he went back after them to be like, "This is bullshit. You gave me a fake sample." And so I don't know. I don't know how that how that ended but it was just pretty like in the same way they they probably pulled a fast one on him thinking like oh we'll send him this like very well done and it was probably just a a, not like a mistake but it was probably just like that zipper probably needed to be put in exactly the right part of the pleat and the way they cut the fabric you could cut it where the zipper would land on like the pleat coming out instead of the pleat going in. And so you would just have to be really mindful with mm-hmm. the way that they do that, did that. And, but if you're mass producing, you know, if you, if you're making one or five or 10, you can be really mindful of the way that you put the zipper in. But if you're making a thousand, you're just going to blow through them. And so, um, yeah, so that was my like crazy kind of fit kind of quality. So, yeah. So
0: often in these situations, it's the customer who sort of rings the alarm that something's wrong. I Like one thing I've countered time and time again in my career is items that are faux leather, AKA plastic coming in, vegan leather, if you will, coming in. And this is like, it's always the same thing that people say, that it smells like fish. <laughs> have you? Have you heard? Oh, God. Yeah, so you worked in accessories, so you, so you know how this can happen. So, customers might be returning stuff and saying it smells like fish. You might hear that from the store team. People might be leaving reviews. Um, That would be an example of something. So what we would generally do in a situation in which there's inventory to audit, we would have the warehouse go and smell all the bags and see if they smell like fish. Uh, We might send a note out to the stores like, hey, can you pull aside all of the bags that smell like fish? And then we might, you know, once we get a count, we can kind of address what the problem is. And it's sort of a similar situation. If something comes in and like you, there's an egregious quality issue in terms of fit or like sewing or whatever, you know, we, we'd want to have the store team kind of give us a count because sometimes it's not everything. Like, with Janine's skirt, it may have just been all of the ones that were in her size because of the way they cut the fabric, or it could have just been a couple. And you have to kind of investigate before you can make a decision. And so when you encounter things like this, as a buyer, it's so it's so stressful because it ends up being a long process with a lot of nagging and touch points and emails and negotiations. So as I mentioned, sometimes you can RTV this or the vendor will just be like, throw it out and we'll give you a credit. Another thing that you can do sometimes, which I have done a few times in my career, is negotiate markdown money. And basically, that's a vendor saying, I'm going to reimburse you for the money you're going to lose by having to sell this on sale. So we're going to make up the what you would have made at full price. And this is pretty rare in specialty stores but it's a very common part of the uh, department store model, and in those cases, you they the buyers would also negotiate a markdown money plan for things that just didn't sell, not because of quality issues, but just because they weren't popular. So the way they manage their money is is a lot different. Janine, have you ever negotiated markdown money from a vendor or been around when it happened?
1: Not really. Primarily because as a planner, that's not really my job. <laughs> fair, in, fair enough. In full transparency. <laughs> um, but but also, it just wasn't something that, certainly in ModCloth, that we did um, for a variety of reasons. But it always kind of felt like a little bit of a fool's errand. We were such a small business, like small potatoes, compared to um, the vendors that we were working with. And we were doing such small units, it was just like we were happy that these vendors would even work with us. So it was just like trying to like we didn't have any power in the situation. Um and kind of similarly, like the money that we would be fighting for would just be like, I don't know, like five thousand mm-hmm. dollars maybe or something. And it just kind of was like didn't feel like didn't feel like it was worth the work of you know doing the whole back and forth potentially putting like a you know putting the relationship on ice um and all of that and at banana we own i mean those were those were that was all of our own production so there was <laughs> there was no markdown money to get yeah yeah there's no there's no one to blame but ourselves you know um so we were accountable for all of that inventory um so i would say in my experience Not super common, but to your point, like I never worked for a department store and I know from just my colleagues, like one of my old managers, she came from Nordstrom and she was shocked when she came to ModCloth and that we didn't negotiate for markdown money because she was like, that she was like, I was, she was like, I was a pro at that. <laughs> she was like, that was like one of the best, like parts of that was like one of the parts of my job. I was like the best at, and so she was sort of disappointed that like she couldn't, um, that we didn't do that.
0: So I actually did. Uh, I've only gotten Markdown money like two or three times in my career. And one time, the first time, was at ModCloth. And it was a lace dress program that was really important to our business. I cannot remember the name of it, but if you shopped on ModCloth in that era, you know the stress. It's when the uh, night comes. When the night comes, yes, thank you. <laughs> so it was huge for us. And it was exclusive to us. And we we spent a lot of money on that program. And one of the colorways came in with just like a massive sizing problem. Like it just, it, it was as if it had been sewn to a different pattern. It, it didn't make any sense. And of course we didn't know this until customers started returning it, complaining. And, and at ModCloth more than anywhere else I've worked, we had such a strong relationship with our customers and we really listened to them. For me, it almost felt like devastating that I had like fucked up somehow. Uh, the good news is that the vendor that made it was actually a pretty big and still, still is around a big department store brand. And so I didn't even have to push for it. They were like, how about we give you markdown money? And so we worked it out. But it was the first time that had happened at ModCloth. So AP, that's accounts payable, <laughs> reached out to me and were like, uh, so what are we supposed to do with this? <laughs> I was like, I, I don't know. I don't work in accounting. <laughs> and the first I spoke with was like, well, we've never gotten markdown money from a vendor. <laughs> so I don't I don't know what happened they deposited the check I'm assuming yeah just cash the check I mean I, I like I know I was like <laughs> I'm not an accountant I don't know how it works don't ask me <laughs> and another time at a at a another small startup that I worked for a startup that was much smaller than ModCloth a pr- uh, one colorway of a really significant program came in uh just a disaster it was some white pants they were part of a suit and The fabric was completely see-through, for one. Uh, The sewing was so bad that there were these, like, rat's nests of threads inside the garment that you could see through the pants. The needles were just jamming up or something, and this was every single pair of pants. Because, of course, I had all the teams pull all the inventory, and I inspected it myself. The other thing that was really problematic is that most customers couldn't fit their feet into the leg of the pants. (laughs) So it was just... It was bad. And if you could get your leg into the pant, get your foot through, you couldn't bend your leg without the pants popping open. Oh and I mean, it was like everything that could go wrong with a pair of pants. And so in that situation, I also negotiated markdown money because we'd already paid f- for the product. And I was like, if we're going to sell this at all, we're going to have to sell it at like a like a sample sale. Sure. I mean, basically, they gave us a full re- refund when you get down to it because we sold everything for like $5 with the idea that maybe people could turn it into shorts or something. I mean, it was just so, so bad. But it's, it's pretty uncommon practice in specialty retail, but it's a huge part of doing business in department stores. So that's another way that you can end up with extra stuff. Basically, it's just – not good. But there are ways you can work that out with the vendor to at least recover the money. Now, once again, the products still exists, So on the business side, like the financial part of it, it, everything's good. We can move on. But I mean, there's still a physical garment that has to go somewhere. So we're still looking at like a lot of waste, even if it's not the waste of money.
1: Yeah. Because it's already been produced. And like it's... Yes. So what are you going to do with it? You're going to cut right. it up. You're going to totally. burn
0: it. You know. I, maybe donated we'll talk about all these things later, but it's it's not it's just not that simple so then another way you can end up with a lot of extra in- inventory is returns and a lot of times these returns will be associated with fit quality like if they're really egregious it's because the fit was weird they were falling apart they smelled like fish something like that like it was already dodgy in brick and mortar stores so meaning like when you go to an actual store and get to try something on and buy it the average return rate is around 10 percent and you you expect that because people have the opportunity to see something in real life, to see if they like the fabric, to make sure it doesn't smell bad, to try it on, you know, to look at themselves in the mirror. You operate under this assumption that most things aren't going to come back because people already know what it is. However, I also started my career working in a store and I would be, my mind would be blown by the returns that would come in. Like people would come in on Saturday, spend $300 and stuff, return it all on Monday because they were regretful. For online fashion, you're probably not surprised to hear this, but the return rate is a lot higher because, you know, you're buying kind of blind. As Janine mentioned in a previous episode, like she wants to touch things, <laughs> right? I all the time order things, get them. And I'm just so scandalized by how gross the fabric feels or it's snaggy.
1: or I'm also just a shameless, shameless, shameless over purchaser when I shop online, <laughs> Because for a variety of reasons, first of all, if I see something that I really like, I would like to buy it in three sizes because I don't know what my size is going to be. And even if it's like someplace I've shopped before, every time they make a new thing, it's still a new thing. And so I just don't know what size I'm going to be. And if it's something I really like, I know that if I get it and it's the wrong size, I'm going to be very disappointed. So I will often order things in two or three sizes because I'm a terrible person and I just want it. I want what I want. <laughs> I want it. Or I also will shamelessly buy things, buy more things to hit the free shipping threshold and then return the thing. Oh, 100%. Everyone does that. Yeah. And I'm like, I have no like, oh, I need to buy something. So I hit the $50 free shipping threshold and I'm fully going to return this item that I bought, like, cause I don't care. <laughs> I mean, and, and also I sometimes will buy things where I'm like, okay, I'm looking for like a dress for a occasion. And so I will buy maybe four or five dresses in three sizes. Oh my God. <laughs> With the intention of only keeping one. Right. And so I would always joke, like we mod ModCloth and any retailer, they track the return rate. So the percentage of the percentage of returns that come back either for a category level for the whole company um, and then for specific customers. And I would always joke that like, I'm sure my return rate was probably like 85%.
0: <laughs> oh, mine too. I mean, I'm, I'm that person. Like I, much as you were saying I'll order 10 things and I will tell myself when I'm placing the order, you can, you can keep two of these. Yeah,
1: like. yeah well then or or if I order th- like something I'm really excited about and I order it in three sizes and then I get it and the quality is like not what I want it to be then I'm just gonna return all three because even if it fits I don't like the quality or I don't like how it feels or whatever or it just like doesn't fit my body mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. my body is not the shape of the thing that this was like made for and so then I'll just return all three and of course I feel like some guilt about that. But it's also like, I don't know what people are supposed to do. When you order online, your
0: house is your dressing room. So it makes sense to me. Exactly. I mean, I, I can't even remember the last time I went into a store and tried clothes on. So I have to really go deep into the recesses of my brain to remember going to stores and taking 10 things into the fitting rooms. Like like the fitting room intended being like, well, the maximum is five, so I'll hold these out here, right? so i would swap back and forth these 10 items and i would leave with one and so that is what online shopping is for a lot of us the return rate for online shopping it it ranges from 25 to 50% and i honestly i think it could be even higher than that but maybe there are other people who aren't like us who keep things
1: <laughs> i don't know my sister is actually the opposite well one one of my sisters she is i don't mean this in a negative way but she's lazy <laughs> When it comes, she she'll buy things and she just she it won't fit her. She doesn't like it or whatever, and she just like it just sits in a corner in her house and she just never returns it. Oh, guys, don't do that. It's bad. It's bad too. (laughs) I'm also like that's free money. If you don't like it, just return it. Like get your fifty dollars back. And then she's just like, oh, but like post office and box and label and tape. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh, like, it's definitely worth the money. I was like, I'll, I'll return your stuff and give me a commission.
0: (laughs) I, I also have people in my life who are like that. We need to form a support group for people who are close (laughs) to people who won't return things.
1: (laughs) I was like, this is the entire like business model for Stitch Fix is, is built on people like you. Because it builds on people not returning things because they're too lazy.
0: (laughs) You know, as we're talking about this, I'm like, we should do an episode about these like subscription services and the statistics behind them because I have so many feelings about that. I have a lot of feelings too. Okay, we'll talk about that later. But I I (laughs) was thinking, yeah, anyway, I have a lot of thoughts there. So one reason that retailers give a deadline on returns, which I'm sure you've seen, it'll be like, oh, you have 30 days to return it to get your full payment method back or after that you might only get a store credit or, you know, some retailers you're not going to get anything. It's because they don't want this product coming back after the ideal sales window is over. Like if you return a pair of shorts in October, n- they're not usable now until next year. So they're going to have to go to a serious markdown to be sold. And going back to our very stressful conversation about straw hats, you don't want someone to buy a straw fedora in March or April and return it in high winter because it's lost all value. So that's another way that very slightly retailers can manage their returns a little bit to prevent stuff from coming back too late. But once again, like if, if something is a flop, it's always a flop in all kinds of different facets. And no matter what, you'll just have a lot of inventory of that style sitting on the store. So that's, that's the way like one style or trend, something very specific can can go awry. And once again, like if you made a huge bet on a lot of different things and they were all wrong at the same time, I mean, you're going to get into a much bigger problem. You know, it's like going to be you're going to have straw hats coming out your ears and maybe you also <laughs> bought cargo shorts or something. And those, I, I don't know when that was a trend, but that was people who wear fedoras <laughs> like like cargo shorts. So it would seem that maybe they were together. Anyway, you, you, you can get into a really bad situation. So next we're going to talk about the high level way, meaning larger stories that cause a ton of excess inventory all at once. And this is, kind of like the kind of stuff we're seeing at H&M like this is gonna be the source of most of their woes why don't why don't you start Janine why don't you talk to us a little bit about that
1: okay so I think the the simplest way to explain like how you end up with too much inventory of something at the highest level is supply versus demand you know you, you expected to sell a bunch of stuff. And for whatever reason, there's not demand in the market for the things that you're selling. And Amanda put in a note about coronavirus. And so that's a great example of just like, no one could have anticipated the economy taking the turn that it has. No one could have anticipated that like all physical retail would be shut down for three months and we wouldn't be able to shop that way. The supply was there. All of these blessed retail companies produce goods and put them out on the shelves and then no one came in to buy it. Specifically because it's summertime, I've been thinking like these these poor businesses, <laughs> they have all this like really summer specific product. Even I can't remember where I was recently, but I was seeing like pool floaties and swimsuits oh and you know summer sandals and like all this stuff and like materially like people really aren't going on vacation right now they're not buying all this stuff and I've just kind of like had like a sad moment in my heart thinking about like what's going to happen to all of this product because sure maybe if it was just a t-shirt or even just shorts you could keep selling that until September maybe in October you could I don't know conceivably hold it for next year or something like that but um really this stuff that is super seasonal, like just becomes trash. And you it, and you kind of have to think about it truly as like a, a consumer good or like a, a, a an item that's being consumed in as much as like food would be consumed. Like it has like a lifespan and like after that life, if after that like moment in time, it has passed like the expiration date kind of like that thing really just becomes garbage um, because people don't want it anymore. And then even if you, in theory we're going to save it for next year and try to sell it next summer like the trend is going to be different people want something different by that time so this thing really like has a finite life and if there isn't demand for it at the time that that it's available for sale it really just becomes garbage so go back to your economics like 101 class and just think of like that supply and demand curve and when you have supply greater than demand you're really just going to end up with this excess inventory. Another way in general that companies end up with too much inventory is that there is an aggressive sales plan. And so there's an incentive to buy heavily across the board in excess of what, I'm just going to say it, what the buyers and planners anticipate the demand is. There's a pressure from from the top to this Q4 is going to be our biggest holiday season ever. We're going to have so many more customers. I know last year you only sold 1,500 of an average item, but this year you're going to buy 2,500 or this year you're going to buy 3,000 of your average item. And that is actually much more common than you would think. And the reason being is that the CEOs and the presidents and the people that run these companies are paid and compensated off of growth. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. even if you have like a good business that's, you know, uh, tried and true, doing doing good day in and day out, but not really, not really growing much compared to last year, not growing much compared to prior quarters or prior weeks, that's not how CEOs get paid. <laughs> they get paid when the business grows. And specifically if they have really measurable or- or market increase in sales. Because uh, that's showing an increase in market share. It's showing that the company has growth. It's showing that like investors should invest and all this kind of thing. But if it, if the company is just kind of stagnant and isn't, <laughs> maybe they're doing good business, but they're not growing. Um, CEO is never going to get like a bonus off of that. And so there's always an incentive from the top to be risky and place these big bets and just see what happens. CEO often isn't, um, an equity holder or doesn't own part of the company. So if they lose on this bet, it's, they might get fired, but it's not going to be, it's not going to be any money out of their pocket. And so there you'll see these, I mean, I saw this, I saw this at banana. I saw this and banana was more interesting in a little bit because that company was publicly traded. So the pressure is actually coming from the shareholders and Wall Street versus the CEO. The CEO is wanting to mm, do what the analysts and do what the shareholders want. But the pressure isn't necessarily coming from the CEO specifically. It's kind of coming from um, the owners of the company. And then with smaller companies like ModCloth and stuff like that, it's, it's still the same thing where there's still this huge... Focus on growth. And so even though you, you as a planner or, or as a buyer, you may see I'm only selling on average 15 units per week of a scarf or 30 units per week of a dress. And then they want you to buy for 50 or 75. You're like, there's no way this is happening. <laughs> but you're told to do it anyways. Yeah, no, it's true. And so then this stuff is produced. And I mean, and maybe if there's a miracle, maybe you have these wonderful sales that, you know, everything's great and everything's (laughs) awesome. But if you don't, then you just have massive, massive, massive amounts of excess inventory. And that stuff becomes trash. In an e-commerce company where you have a warehouse and, and the goods aren't in a store or something like that, it really just bloats the warehouse like you get the warehouse physically will get full of product that is just not bought and then eventually that has to be liquidated and go somewhere
0: yeah and based on what i was reading about h&m this is a big part of how they ended up in the position they're in there was this idea that they're gonna grow 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 open even more stores and they were just gonna stuff these stores yes. to the gills like the growth they were uh, expecting which I, I mean i'm gonna say this like I feel like H&M has been on a downturn for a long time, so it's really shocking to hear that even just a few years ago, they were like, nope, H&M, we're going to grow faster than ever.
1: It's denial, though. I mean, it's it's denial. It is. It is.
0: You know, and, and in my lifetime, I've seen brands come and go. We've all seen it, and they have a really, really defined life cycle, and it always seems like the process of a brand just falling off the face of the earth is expedited by this denial that the growth isn't there anymore. Yeah,
1: The next thing that we can talk about that also can fuel excess inventory, similar to this attitude of wanting to grow, 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 and buy as much as possible to fuel these big sales plans, there's also an attitude in retail that if you sell out of something, then you've left money on the table. So if you sell out, Oh we didn't buy enough then. That's that's money that's money we could have made that oh, we yes. didn't make. Like you you idiot. You've ruined you've ruined our our <laughs> our business because you didn't buy enough. Yeah, and I think it's important
0: to call out that like like this is the kind of thing that as a buyer or planner can affect the trajectory of your career. It's not just about buying the wrong things, it's also about not buying enough of the things that can bite you in the butt later on. And
1: I would argue, personally, as a planner, <laughs> that if you sell out, <laughs> that's a good thing. You make, I the agree. Bet. Like, <laughs> it feels it's good. Like, a you good know. job, you know. Because
0: mission accomplished. Let's move
1: yeah, on. <laughs> well, and my sister always talks about type one versus type two errors. So, like, when you're buying inventory, like, there's two. You can be wrong in two ways: you can buy too much, mm-hmm. or you can buy too little. And from a planning standpoint, I see the risk, the higher risk between those two choices of buying too much. Because when you buy too much, you have to liquidate it. And often you're often almost, well, I'll just say often, often you're selling it below cost. So whatever money you made on those units that you sold at full price, you're now eroding the profit that you made on those by the ones that you're selling at a loss, right? So I would much rather <laughs> sell out than not buy enough. And it is interesting. Um, I have seen. I'm trying to think of. Well, let me just say this, and this is, <laughs> I full disclosure, I am in a girlfriend collective <laughs> legging rabbit hole right now. So let's we'll just call it what it is, but. I am looking for these certain leggings from Girlfriend Collective in a certain color. I would actually also like to get the bike shorts too. The bike shorts I've almost all but given up on because I can't find them on the internet anywhere, but in my size, right? And these bad boys sold out. I can't find them anywhere, you know? And... I am sad because I want specific color and whatever, but they sold out. And I've noticed actually with Girlfriend Collective and there's some other brands where they, I can tell that their business model is to buy lean and sell out. And it's it can be frustrating to mm-hmm. the customer like me because there's a thing that I want that I can't have. <laughs> but it also tells me as a customer, a message that, oh, if something launches and you want it, you better buy that today. Don't wait until tomorrow. Don't wait until two weeks from now because it's going to sell out. And then that gives me an incentive to buy it at full price, right? And so I personally believe that this is a better business model to be in. And also make it, it helps you avoid being in the problem where you have too many straw hats, right? Um, that you have to sell at a loss. So I personally don't ascribe to this attitude that if if we sell out, we've left money on the table. I can understand that perspective in theory, but i I personally don't ascribe to it. Um, but it is an attitude that people have, and what's also crazy that kind of goes along with this um, attitude that if you, you know, if you sell out, you've left money on the table. There's an acceptance for the fact that you are going to overbuy and that you are going to have too much inventory. Um, and that's a known, it's just a known issue that you're going to encounter. And so then finance and, and planning will actually build selling that, that excess inventory um, either at a loss or destroying it or liquidating it or donating it. They will build that, um, that loss into the financial plan and what's crazy is that you can actually still have excess inventory and obsolete inventory that you liquidate for pennies on the dollar, and still make money as a whole. And I think that's—I mean, if you're if you're thinking about um, this example mm-hmm. with H and M that uh, Amanda started the episode with, H and M is bro. Those people are making money. Like those—that <laughs> is a—that is a successful business. And yet they incinerated (laughs) tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of of pieces of inventory. And I think that just helps call into clarity how cheap that product is, right? If you're able to literally light your product on fire and still be a successful business, what is going, like, that's not okay. (laughs) Um, And so I think it's, that is the, that's kind of the craziness about it. It's crazy that people um, buy so much inventory. It's crazy that people sell it for so cheap. But what's really crazy is that you can still have a functional, profitable business that participates in these behaviors. If If that wasn't the case, they wouldn't be doing it, right? And they wouldn't still be in business, but they are.
0: Oh, yeah, 100%. And I think it's interesting that you talk about this sort of like scarcity model, like, okay, if we sell out of something, it's going to motivate our customers in the future to all of these things, all of these phenomena, all these things that we think of as being separate and not related, all of their repercussions actually are related. And we're starting to see that now as we dig into this. Your brand is this like, whoa, it's so popular and in demand. Like it's even cooler, right? But we also see luxury brands overbuying and then refusing yes. to mark things down and instead choosing to destroy it because it would be brand damaging to mark it down so we're going to talk about that in a little bit but i just i just think it's interesting that even brands whose entire cachet is this idea of it not being accessible to everyone also say we're going to overbuy and destroy it yeah it's just it's just so gross guys okay
1: It's worse than trash.
0: (laughs) It's worse than trash. This is trash that people worked hard to make, too. You know? like Like, it's like when you see a really bad movie or television show, and you look at the (laughs) credits at the end, and you think, all these people worked so hard, and they were stressed out, and maybe some of them missed their mom's birthdays, or (laughs) got sick because they (laughs) were working really long hours, or, you know, maybe they had a moment where they cried and said, you know, in the future, I'm going to have a better work-life balance, and... All that came out of it was this shitty movie <laughs> that everyone will forget. It's like, a, it's like a similar thing, you know? There's like the waste. It's The waste is exponential it, because it's not even just the clothes. It's the work. It's the time. It's the trucks that delivered them, the gas that was in them. You know, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> I feel like every episode I record, I, I'm getting more extreme in my beliefs. So... <laughs> <laughs> And one more surprising reason for excess inventory that I'm going to call out is that, you know, there can be like really poor internal processes in the warehouses and stores that keep, for keeping track of inventory. And I'm sure you've experienced this as well, Janine, where like, oh, uh, so like, hey, I just want to let you know, we found like eight pallets of inventory. I mean, we knew they were there. they were back in the corner uh, and we just like haven't dealt with them until now. So uh, what do you want us to do? Uh, this has happened to me at a lot of my jobs. <laughs> Like, it's so common. And, you know, this happened at Nasty Gal. Uh, It was it it started as a place where people threw things that got returned that they didn't have time to process back into inventory. And then maybe someone shipped a couple extra units and they didn't know how to adjust the inventory in the system. So they added that to the pile. And this went on for four or five years. (laughs) And suddenly there were like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of stuff in that pile. I remember hearing about this happening at Dolls Kill a couple years ago, and I I couldn't find it on the internet, but I remember it being a really shocking amount of inventory. It was like a million dollars worth of inventory, and I don't know if that was at cost or at retail, but it was the same kind of thing where people were just piling stuff up, like, we'll deal with it later, we'll deal with it later. And then suddenly it was like, oh, it's, uh, you know, 5% of our, our inventory is just this pile over there in the corner.
1: It blows my mind how that stuff happens, but it's also one of those things like if you've spent any time in a warehouse, you're like, oh, I know exactly how this happens. (laughs) It's true. It's true.
0: I mean, warehouses are a complex machine. There's never enough manpower ever, you know, to keep up with things. And if everybody who works there isn't super engaged in some mission to you know, be as efficient and, uh, I don't know, like responsible with the inventory as possible, then these things are going to happen. And I mean, why would you expect someone who you're paying $10 an hour to be, you know, fretting about what's happening to the returns when they leave work? Like they're not, and they, and they shouldn't, they shouldn't. Uh, That's that goes into a whole, whole diatribe about, you know, the treatment (laughs) of workers and warehouses. And that's a different episode, but, for sure. I mean, these things are multifaceted. And it's interesting because we I feel like we return to a lot of different themes. You know, we return to this idea of like waste, of the treatment of workers, of us buying so much stuff that we don't care about returning it. Like, you know, all of these things are related, even if they don't seem like it at first. Like, they're all part of a culture that makes us want more and more. And, and that's linked to a society that, you know, just like covers its eyes when shown waste and injustice. And, and that's all steered by a capitalist structure that wants more and more for itself, totally at the expense of humans and our environment. It's important for us to try to unpack this, to understand it, and, you know, think more about making better decisions in the future. You know, knowing is half the battle, to quote G.I. Joe. Hi, it's me, Amanda, again. Janine will be back for the next episode to discuss the ways that brands and retailers deal with all that excess inventory. And oh man, it's a complicated and sometimes dark story. So stay tuned for that. I wanted to take a few more moments to talk about the hashtag #PayUp movement. As we've discussed in previous episodes, due to a decrease in sales caused by COVID-19 closures and the terrible state of our economy, Many, well, to be honest, probably all apparel brands and retailers canceled orders on their factory partners. And now that Janine has explained to you how these retailers can so easily find themselves with way too much inventory, you can see why their go to for mitigating the exponential decrease in demand is always going to be canceling. Like it always is going to be canceling. And guess what? They sure have canceled. Analysts believe that billions upon billions of dollars in orders were canceled in the wake of COVID. $3 billion in Bangladesh alone. And that's just one source of our clothing. To give you an idea of the scale of these cancellations, millions, millions, that's a plural million of workers in Bangladesh lost their jobs. Millions. And once again, that's just one country. Canceling an order on a vendor isn't as simple as like, oh, okay, thanks for the heads up, we'll just delete that from the system. Remember, most of these clothes are sewn two to three months before they arrive in a retailer's warehouse, sometimes even longer, depending on the individual brand's production timeline. I mean, some people are working six months out. Let's kind of unpack that a little bit. So if, for example, in March, a retailer cancels an April order, so that's the next month, right? That order is probably already in the U.S. or very, very close. And to be clear, March is when these orders started being canceled. Okay, so we already know that the April orders are done and they're almost here. Well, okay, so it's still March. The retailer cancels a May order. So that's like that could be up to two months out. That order is definitely on a boat or possibly already on the way to the airport for shipment via air. Because remember... Not only does this stuff have to get to the U.S., it has to go through customs and that can take some time. So a vendor who knows what they're doing is going to pad in a few weeks or even up to a month for that process of going through customs because things get stuck there all the time and it's a nightmare on both sides. OK, so we've already determined that April and May stuff that was on order that was canceled is already like, what a waste, right? It already existed. OK, what about if it was a June order? So June would be three months away from March. And also, we're pretending that these cancellations were done on March 1st. But what if they were done on March 15th or March 20th? I mean, a few weeks makes a big difference here. So if it's a June order, it was definitely already sown. And once again, it might already be on a boat. We're seeing a pattern here, right? Okay, so what if it was a July order? I mean, that seems like a lot of time, right? That's like four months. But honestly, at the very least, the materials so we're talking the fabric, the trims, the labels, the boxes the orders are going to be shipped in, the poly bags all of that has already been purchased by the factory, and the fabric may already be cut. That renders the fabric virtually useless if it can't be sewn into the intended garment. So here once again, we're talking about some more waste here and that fabric is paid for. All right, so what if it's an August order? I mean, it's August right now, right? So can you believe that all of this has been going on for five months? (laughs) Me neither. (laughs) So if it's an August order and it was canceled in March, I'm here to tell you that definitely some of the materials were in process. The fabric was woven or printed or maybe even washed down at this point. It's important to remember, the fabric is kind of the first step in all of this. So basically to summarize, when these retailers canceled the orders in March and April, the suppliers had already purchased materials, the factories had already completed the orders, and the workers had already spent months laboring for a paycheck that wasn't coming. So the sewers, the finishers, the employees of the zipper factory, the fabric mill, and, and on and on and on. None of these people are getting paid. And it, it's always really important for me to show you all of the people that our clothing touches. Because I think when we hear about factories not being paid, we assume it's just the people who are in there doing the actual sewing. But if you've learned anything so far from Clothes Horse, you know that there are so many other people who touch what we wear. And those people aren't being paid either. Basically every ingredient of a garment is not being paid for right now. So I wanna call out that 80% of garment workers worldwide are women. So most of these employees who aren't getting paid are women and they're trying to support their families as best as possible. I mean, they're working 10 to 12 hours a day in most cases making their country's minimum wage, which much like in the US, the minimum wage is far below a living wage. They live paycheck to paycheck. We know that it's impossible to save money for a rainy day or a global pandemic when you're barely getting by. These women, they don't have the safety net of unemployment insurance. So imagine working 10 to 12 hours a day, raising your family, cleaning the house, cooking the meals, helping with homework, and somehow getting by until COVID hits. And now you aren't getting paid. In fact, you're probably owed back pay and there's no pay coming down the road. So now you're facing homelessness. You can't buy food. You certainly can't afford healthcare. Meanwhile, back in the States and elsewhere, retailers are canceling orders but still paying dividends to their stockholders. Psst, Paying dividends means that there's been a profit. Or maybe the retailer is sitting on a lot of cash in the bank that could be used to pay for these orders and therefore prevent the suffering of garment workers across the world. It seems wrong, right? Okay, maybe this seems too far away from you. Like, who knows what the cost of living is like in Bangladesh, so why worry about it too much? Okay, how about this? Let's talk about a place a little closer to home. Los Angeles, California. As we've discussed in previous episodes, L.A. is the center of the American garment industry. The fallout of COVID was quick and brutal in L.A. According to an assessment conducted by the Garment Workers Center, which we'll talk more about them later, approximately 75% of the industry is currently unemployed. 75% guys. While a small amount of makers are being employed to produce PPE for health workers, the pay for this labor is low. And in some cases, it's only a promise of pay. These workers face the same fear of eviction, starvation, lack of health care as their international counterparts. And as we've revealed in the past, made in the USA, made in LA, neither of these terms mean ethical or fair. In fact, the average LA garment worker earns just $6 an hour. Many are undocumented immigrants or they are paid under the table. So they don't have access to unemployment or health care right now. Okay, well, what about the lucky ones who somehow still have a job, probably making masks? Because a lot of our masks are coming from L.A. right now. Most are reporting that the factories are not taking the right safety precautions, exposing their employees to extraordinary health risk. Remember Dove Charney and L.A. Apparel? More than 300 employees tested positive for COVID. Four of them died. The factory was using cardboard as a divider between workstations, and no other precautions were being followed. In a mask factory. In a mask factory. What? Those who are still working are being paid less than ever. Or once again, they may be working for the promise of future pay. What is an IOU for working? Are you interested in that offer? So what can you do? There are a few things. One, I would urge you to follow Remake on Instagram. Their account is at Worlds. They have been aggressively steering the pay-up movement. Please sign their petition. So far, they've gotten about 18 brands to pay up, but there's still a lot more to go. This is a good place to find out who hasn't paid and who has decided to pay. If you want to help out LA workers, I recommend checking out the Garment Workers Center. They were tirelessly advocating for workers' rights well before COVID, but now they are working to get food into the hands of these workers, along with helping them with other hardships they are facing right now. You can donate, or if you also are feeling the financial misery of COVID, I hear you, then at least educate yourself and discover more info to share with your friends and family. So what should you do next? See who isn't paying. It's a very diverse list of retailers and brands. Once again, you can find all of this information at Remake Our World. And start commenting on these brands' social media posts. Don't stop. Don't give up. Share this information with your friends, both on social media and IRL. Honestly, most people still don't even know that this is happening. So we got to get it out there. Next, do not, and I mean do not, buy things from these brands that are refusing to pay. Your purchase does not help them pay for canceled orders. I've, I've seen people commenting that, well, I'm going to buy stuff from this company so that they have money to pay their workers. That's not going to happen. It does not benefit the workers in any way. Listen, hold a grudge, my friends. Hold them accountable. Remember, your money is as powerful as your vote. And we, the Clothes Horse community, we do not vote for assholes. Thanks for listening to another episode of Clothes Horse. Questions, comments, corrections? Please drop me a line at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com. Right now, I'm actively collecting listener stories for an upcoming episode about drop shipping brands like Shein, Wish, and Romwe. There's a lot more. It's like a long list. I get a lot of Instagram ads for them, so you know what I'm talking about. If you have a story to share about a purchase you've made, send me an email. Or you can find us on Instagram at clotheshorsepodcast. Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. And maybe if you have a few extra moments, you could write a review. This will help us reach more listeners. Thank you to everyone who has been sharing with friends. I love it. Let's bring more awesome people into our circle of not giving money to assholes. Thanks as always to Dustin Travis White for our theme music and audio support. Bye.